Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons, a philosophy podcast about big topics and bite-sized pieces. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a graduate student in education at Liberty University, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of philosophy and English at Genesee Community College. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about time. Along with cosmology and consciousness, I think time is one of the most interesting topics in philosophy. All three have a common denominator, namely, that they are so integral to the human experience they become mundane, and yet they persist as the greatest unknowable mysteries we've ever encountered. A discussion of time involves asking a diverse number of questions. Is it real? Does it have limitations? Can it be manipulated? We'll be tackling all of those and more in this episode, as well as engaging in what I know from previous experience to be a mind-bending conversation at the end of the show. So sit back, strap in, and prepare to travel into the future, one second at a time. All right, so time. We got kind of a, an interesting podcast here. Do you have anything you want to say about it before we, before we jump in? Well, only that I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's one of your favorite topics, too, because it certainly is mine. Not, and so it dovetails with it dovetails my fascination with science fiction, lifelong, um, anything from endless time travel stories in Star Trek to the marvelous iterations of Doctor Who and, and all the way back to the very earliest uh, Time Machine novel. Up until it's still, I have a book that I teach a science fiction class with. Um, the whole book was edited a couple of years ago and it's just current time travel stories, all kinds of different flavors. The history of science fiction is something that's always kind of interesting. I was looking that up in preparation for this. Like, what was the first time travel story? And there's some debate about it. There's the one where. There's a clock that when you set it, it only runs backwards and anybody close to it goes in reverse and stuff. And they say, well, that's not really time travel because it doesn't have like a mechanism for use or whatever. But I mean, think about it. You get close to a black hole and your time slows down because of the gravity well. And we don't really have, you know, we, we know mathematically what the process of it is. Even flying in a jet. If, if flying in a jet, your time is different than... By, by micro measures, but measurable, uh, different than if you're staying on the ground. And that's, that's why GPS works is because if we didn't have Einstein's theory of relativity, then your GPS wouldn't work because it's, it's in space. So it's traveling at a, the time difference is, doesn't match up. Oh, we're going to have fun. <laughs> a little side note, if there's a flat earth, that wouldn't be possible. <laughs> if Einstein was wrong, that wouldn't be possible. So there's a few different things going on there. But so we'll jump into the the first section, which is kind of the character of time. And this has been probably the bigger debate about the question of time in philosophy. And that is, you know, is is time a real thing or is it something that we just kind of make up as part of or even, you know, as a necess- a necessary element of human experience? Is it do we just experience time because if we didn't experience time, we wouldn't be able to experience any sensory information at all. So what are the back, what are the backgrounds, um, historically of how that argument has gone? Okay. Well, we start with the pre-Socratics again, Parmenides, um, late, um, 
well, you want to say early. See, this is the time thing when you, when you're talking about BCE timeframes, you're going from the 500s to 400s. So <laughs> it's always fun. Uh, so Parmenides says time is either an illusion or it's infinite. And, and in either case, reality is timeless. And so he was one of the earliest, uh, monists with the universe being made of all one thing. <clears throat> we just perceive it differently because we're not good enough to be able to be on the outside looking in. Uh, then there's Heraclitus. You like the word cosmology and so on. He's, he invented cosmos, the term he coined, coined it. Thought I would let you know that as a little side note of, so time is transformation. Time marks the process. Time involves change. Uh, but again, Parmenides says time is illusory. It's, it's an illusion. Uh, reality is a single thing. And that comes back uh, many hundreds of years later. Uh, there's a thing of, of early, again, we're still in the BCE time frame. Um, two words that you'll recognize. One is uh, Kronos. And not just referencing the old Greek gods, but Kronos is, it becomes in philosophy measured time, refers to measured time. And then there's Kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. And Kairos is experienced time. So it's, it's qualitative uh, time, often measured on decisive moments. That's sort of an interesting thing because like before they even had you know, scientific measurements, seconds, minutes, hours, that sort of thing. They already knew there was a distinction between measurable time and how you experience time. And that's, that's kind of a, I mean, we sort of take that for granted because, you know, when you have a clock, it's easy to say, oh, it's only been an hour or, oh my gosh, it's been an hour, you know, that sort of thing. But if you don't have a clock, it's sort of weird to think that you'd have that same sensation. It, it is. Some of the best days, we're doing kinds of side notes. It's time. Some of the, the, the best days are those when one isn't looking at the clock, just pursuing what you pursue. If I'm doing a piece of artwork or I'm working on something for class, sitting in front of a fire, reading a novel, uh, and you get the sense that the light is different coming through the windows and so on. You, you have an experience. You might have experienced years in a novel and you've experienced nothing about the hours that have passed by you <clears throat> until you emerge. The first, the first time travel story is the first human memory. Mm. Yeah, and that's, that's something that we'll get into a little bit later is how, how humans kind of experience and store time as, as part of that. But, so, we have, so what are the, the two camps as far as people who think of time as being real and people who think of time as being a construct? What are, what are the two camps? And Currently, you, you said the first one, Einstein, who, who uh, taught, uh, took from his uh, teacher, Minkowski, uh, is actually the person who coined the word space-time. But for Einstein, time was place and measure. and discrete uh and multiple so that so that there isn't one event that happens just at that moment uh, so we can perceive something you know the the classic you heard about it when you were in school i'm sure but we still but casting back when we had television and not cable and not digital somewhere out there in the universe the uh i love lucy show is still playing 
Right. Someone encounters that for the first time and they're saying, ah, this is new because it's just happening. But of course it happened before. Right. Um, so there's the measurable, uh, though quantum uh, nature, relativistic nature of, of time from the scientific viewpoint of people like Einstein, if there were anyone else like Einstein, Einstein, Hawking, and so on. And then the other side of that is just the experiential, as we were talking about. So time as not separable into discrete elements. Time as a kind of bubble. So there's time's arrow, and then there's time's bubble. Um, bubble being something happens, but it is always past, present, and future constantly going on. So there's a debate about whether you can separate past, present, and future, or they are all of them are an illusion, but essentially there's only the moment now. Okay. So yeah, I think that maybe this is something you'll be able to help out with, because I, I sort of have a, a hard time wrapping my mind around it. To me, it sort of seems like the people who are from that latter camp, it seems like the first one is scientific, like we've got it down, that's time, we've nailed it. And it seems like the other people like, oh, that's kind of an outdated concept. It's sort of like saying if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, that it didn't make a sound. You know, we all know it. We all know it did. So, you know, if there's nobody here to experience time, time is still happening. Right. But I think that there's a little bit more to that. That argument than than that Kant and some other people kind of built a system to it. Can you can you explain a little bit? clarify a little bit why it's still a valid, um, it's still sort of a valid thing to think. Well, I want to start with a person named Sider. Um, who's still, he was born in 1967, and he's one of the current-ish philosophers talking about this. He says the universe is a block. Now, this again goes back to the ancient, but reworking it. Um, a, um, a manifold. And so all time frames exist within block so language tenses like uh i dropped that glass are reflective of the i i'm dropping the glass you always are dropping the glass because it's always there um so the tenses don't necessarily accommodate the fluidity so time's not a river uh, I shouldn't have said fluidity as well but but it's uh, another i think we've mentioned this in a different cast there's essentially the view that if you had a giant pile of paper and every piece of paper represented a year uh, billions of pieces of paper it's all there and you could open it up and be in any one of those particular places because it all happens right and that kind of comes like you were saying with the i love lucy thing um you know i guess if you let's say there was aliens living on a planet 30 light years away if they had a powerful enough light, you know, telescope, they could look at Earth and see me being born or see you at, you know, however old you were 30 years ago. And so they're looking at it and that's their reality. They're seeing that as this is what's happening. And we do the same thing. We look out everywhere and we see, oh, hey, there's this, that and the other thing. And we, we tend to think of it as time or as um, distance. We think, OK, well, that thing's a far ways away. But in reality, it's not just a far ways away, it's much further back in time. But what we're seeing is a much younger version of it. And that brings up the whole question of, well, if we're seeing it at this point, is it still existing in, in our present? Or is it something that existed in the past and it no longer 
Bergson, Bergson, Omri Bergson, who takes a very, very different view than Einstein. That's the page he's, that he's on. He, he and, and Cider and so on would say, well, it's, it's all now. It's not that it was. It's still, it, because this moment is accommodating that because, because I am remembering, therefore, it exists, and if I'm anticipating the future, that's still in this moment. So that's the bubbleness of it. It grows outward. Yeah, I think that I've heard. I heard two sort of analogies to explain. And one was, you know, time is just kind of like a a vinyl record. Which if you'd mentioned this ten years ago, nobody knew what it is, but now they do again. So yeah, so you know, you you know, our perception is just the needle. So the present is just the needle. But the whole record is there. It just depends on what part is being played at that moment. So as you go around, you are make you know you hear that specific thing, but the whole record's still there. You're just not in that specific time. Or uh, the other one I heard was you know if you're a deep sea diver, if you're at the bottom of the ocean, you have a lamp, you have that sphere of light around you, and what's inside of it you know is is the present. But as you move around, that sphere of light moves with you, and the whole ocean is there, but you only have the perception of what that little bubble that you're in. So I hope that that kind of clears up for people the other side of that argument, because I know I was having a hard time with that. You know, it seemed like you, you think about Einstein, you think about modern science, and you oh, well, that makes so much sense. There's no other side to that argument. But then when you actually start to look at some of these other things, you think, well, that, that makes sense, too. Yeah. So it's whether, whether you see it as discrete or inseparable. That's mm-hmm. really the, the you ask for the two poles, and that's really what they have. Okay, so let's let's look at the the boundaries of time, and um, let's start with set points. So, did time start? Will time end? And these are these are the philosophy questions. It's like we were talking about a couple episodes ago. The small things are the big things. The book ends whenever whenever there's a, a book end, uh, starting in an ending point or a small point and a large point. That's where the philosophy comes in. So. Who has, um, who speculated on the beginning of time and the end of time? Well, we'll go back to the ancients again. So there's a, a, a philosopher named uh, Plotinus. Some people say Plotinus, but I've heard it both ways, Plotinus and Plotinus, who says that there is a, like this, timeless creator. Here we go with the unmoved mover thing again, yeah. except another way of phrasing it, uh, who's immune, an interesting word that we've used, to any change and therefore outside of time. So he's not fundamental or it's not fundamental to reality. Uh, and then there's this, this chain of being dropping all the way down to humans at the very bottom. Uh, so all kinds of uh, supernatural entities or levels of, of, of the divine. And, and so time becomes very important to humans because as Plotinus says it's uh it's a gift and augustine picked up on this metaphysically uh to be able to conceive of the infinite because that way it enhances your attempt augustine says much later at uh salvation Plotinus was not talking about that that was uh, pre-christian um and so he's He's saying that it's an illusion for us because we have limited capacity to perceive. So 
I think Plotinus would probably like the uh, idea of the person at the bottom of the ocean with the mm. with the light. Right. If we had powerful enough light or good enough senses, we probably could see everything. And yes, you've, we've talked about before about if if we are narrow in what we take in. Yeah, I think about that sometimes in little science fiction thought experiments. You know, people ask me about like the Drake equation or you know extraterrestrial life and stuff, and it seems like. I think that the answer seems pretty, pretty clear where like, man, we've got pretty good sensing capabilities now and we don't really see much out there. So it's, you know, it's probably if there's anything, it's microbial or something or whatever. But I think that there is that point where you think about, well, the, the chances of ever meeting an extraterrestrial species, it would really have to depend on them having an extremely long lifetime because I mean, you look at it scientifically and it, there's a pretty firm consensus that you can't go faster than the speed of light and that wormholes, although mathematically possible, don't seem to be physically possible because you'd need some sort of anti-gravity to prop them open while you traveled through them and some crazy stuff. So where we are now, no, but right. where we might be, well, yes. So yeah, it's all, it's all, it's theoretically possible, but practically impossible at this point. So but if you had a if you had a species that had a, a very long lifetime, one of two things would happen. Either you'd have them, they'd be able to live long enough to solve some of these problems, or they would travel the same way that we do at the speed of light, at the you know the cosmic speed limit, the speed of light. But it just wouldn't matter to the, to them that it took millions of years to get to us. Mm. There's a there's a, a novel uh, has a different title. The movie that came out two years ago. Arrival. It's one of the best science fiction films that I've seen because it's not about primarily about blasting the aliens and all this. Kind of, it's it's about language. It's about uh, these creatures who are incredibly old, but they're coming to us for help. Uh, but the language that they write exudes through a kind of um, squid-like uh, oil uh, is self-referential, cyclical, and embodies all of time. So it's what it's sort of what Plotinus. And I'm, and I have to correct myself. I, I did an egregious thing. So Plotinus was before Christianity. He wasn't. He was 200 years after, uh, the, the birth of Christ. Um, um, so he was trying to reconcile issues. So editorial because humbleness is important. Uh, but, but the idea of just picking up on what you said. So here, aliens who, um, their whole perception is of everything that has happened. And so their language accommodates past, present, and future. And this is what frazzles the humans trying to figure out the language. So it's not they land, they speak in English, and then we have a bunch of battles. You know, it's, it's all about wrestling with the tiniest concept. And we're on a linear, and this is what Plot, Plotinus was saying, time's arrow. Um, I think a couple of sets ago we talked about the idea that Christianity was the first linear major linear religion or, or metaphysical view. Um, and that's what he was picking up on. So the arrow is this kind of shadowy thing to, to launch. If you shoot an arrow, I mean, I've done that once, so I'm not an archer, but I love archer stories. But and you watch it go. Well, maybe mine doesn't go very far, but you watch it go and and you see it passing through all kinds of moments, plotting this up. It is, it is that which carries us into the future. And so we we watch it <clears throat> we can conceive of being someplace else. And so the uh, time is a divine gift 
let us see where we might go. Right. And this has really important implications for conversations about the self that we'll talk about a couple episodes from now. I was just working on um, yesterday, but how you perceive yourself moving through time or is it even yourself or is it different? And are you moving? Right. Yeah. It's all, it's all um, very interesting, but, but yeah. So, and uh, you know, yeah, coming back to that other thing, you know, if you had a, a species that was real old and, and that sort of thing, there's um, somebody who brought up the point that if they were that old, we might not even be able to communicate with them because it might take them so long to form a sentence. Or if you look at an audio spectrum, the longer a wavelength is, the lower it is in pitch. And we might even have a hard time detecting that what they're saying or, you know, so on and so forth. And creates all kinds of different different issues. And Tolkien did this with his ants. The ants, the old trees, the tree herders, right? And and they so one of the what's what the character also says, don't be hasty. Right. And and so they're taking a day to introduce each other by name. And for the hobbits this is intolerable because there are things going on. We have to deal with things now. And the trees, no, there's no <laughs> So so yeah, then and you know, I think that a lot of modern um, philosophers that would speculate on extraterrestrial life would say, yeah, those are issues that we might have. And you know, so lots of times the arts are imitating the science or the philosophy that's going on. And it's funny that you mentioned Arrival because they did. They have these octopus or squid-like creatures. And I was reading a, a study a couple months ago that was saying that they think that octopus might be extraterrestrial life. They think that octopus might have come on an asteroid or something because they have this ability to um, repair their DNA and, and do some things that, that nothing else on Earth can. And so that's, the, that's their explanation, which I'm sure that they will debunk quickly. <laughs> They'll find something else that can do it and it will it's become a normal. Speculate though, isn't it? Is it is because of the, I mean, and you said lots of times. See, the way we use that word yeah. and, and, and what you said about syllables, um, this partly Aquinas, uh, not Aquinas, Augustine is talking about this. So, so what happens when we read a poem? We, we read words that are syllables. The syllables don't exist all at once. One syllable is gone, the next syllable is there. We, but we remember how it goes together. But in, in uh, discrete moments or units, this syllable, syllable, all right, syllable. It's gone. Uh, it's gone. Oh, it's gone. But yeah, we put it together and we remember it. And this is that, that time. Time rendered in poetry. So, I mean, yeah, just it's, it's an interesting thing to keep in mind as we have the conversation. Is, is it, are we stitching together separate moments in time through human experience? Or are they things that exist and do exist on some different plane outside of our experience as part of the universe? Yeah. Okay, so the other part of the boundaries of time, you know, I don't know if we really talked about set points much, the start and the end of time, but. No, we didn't. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, let's, so who is, who's talked about it? Who has had something to say about it? Well, I, uh, again, if you go back, let's set that. points as a term, um, I can't point to philosophers that I can think of offhand they use that term. They're there, but I, but I, there's probably a reason for that because, you know, 
there's always been religious traditions that have talked about the beginning of time and the end of time. And so I think that that they sort of filled that void in and philosophers sort of fit into the framework of that. You've had Christian philosophers or Greek philosophers that accepted the, the, the religious um, precedent set. And on top of that, you know, I mean, even modern, modern scientists who are looking at the things, it's still religion at that point because a lot of the speculation about the beginning of time or the end of time is requires a bit of faith. You know, some of the science falls apart at those ends anyway. It does. And, and the very idea of set points, I mean, whatever one calls them. I mean, this is what, this is what, again, um, Erickson McTaggart, McTaggart wanted about. So he says there, there are different kinds of series, an A series, a series of moments, past, present, and future, a B series, a moment that's put in order in relation to other things. So there's the, there's a moment, there's a moment, there's a moment, but then there's how do we order those moments and, and make them important? Well, that requires a beginning and an end of moments, perhaps, but, but then metaphysicists will say, well, the word beginning is an artificial construct. If the universe is the universe, perhaps it never began. Perhaps it's always been there. But of course, then we have to say, oh, <laughs> that's when your brain really starts to hurt. <laughs> And I'm, I'm going to bring that up in our last topic and demonstrate how that works out in, in an argument. And that will, that'll break some people's brains because it still breaks mine. But, but yeah, so I, you read, um, like Stephen Hawking's last, last work or some of these other people and they'll say, you know, they'll get questions from these, these avid science fans and these science fans are, they're more philosophy fans, but they just don't know it. But they'll ask, you know, so what happened before the Big Bang? What happened before? And they'll say, and the scientists are very dry, dry folks. So they just say, that question doesn't make any sense. The time started with the beginning of the universe. And in the framework of science, that's true. There is no evidence. There's no reason to believe that there was anything before the Big Bang or the beginning of the universe. But some people do do this. Some people do pick up on the Hawking occasionally did smile and that's <laughs> good. No, but, but then he just presented an infinite regression of mirrors. Well, it began, it ended, it began again. There's only one that I've heard that doesn't do that. And that is, um, it's a multiverse theory, but it's not an infinite, in, infinite multiverse theory. And what happens is they say that, um, you know, if you look at the four, major forces, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, gravity, um, and shoot. But anyways, um, electromagnetic. So if you go back, what they can do is they can look back and see, you go back far enough, these forces combine, all of them except gravity. Gravity, they cannot get it to combine with the other three. So what they think is, well, if you do some math that doesn't make any sense to me, what you find is that if you trace them back to when those things could have combined, you could have a few dozen or a few hundred universes all created at once. And gravity is the thread that holds them all together. And they all have separate laws for strong nuclear, weak nuclear, and electromagnetic forces. So that one is kind of interesting to me because that does give you, okay, here is a defined set point. Here's a defined number of universes. You know, like, which is one of the oxymorons of the title of this whole podcast. Right. Because then <laughs> people are always going to finite yeah. number of universes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Because <laughs> you ask other scientists, they'll say, well, no, the universe is the sum of everything that we know. So there is nothing outside the universe. So yeah, the whole, the whole argument gets kind of nuts. So we'll move on from set points because we didn't talk about it. Then we did talk about it and made a, a mess up. <laughs> so we'll move on. Units, um, units of time. So this one was kind of interesting. I was, I was looking up units of time right before you got here. And um, there was one that there's a unit of time where it's the duration of 9,192,631,770 oscillations of a cesium atom. And that unit of time is a second. One second. That's how they measure it. By almost uncountable number. I mean, it is countable, but oscillations in the... It raises all kinds of questions for me. Like, how did you measure that many oscillations in a second? How, why that number? You know, all of these things, but... Is the number significant? But it right? raises, and, you know, it, it raises the importance of philosophy and, and what we've talked about in the previous episodes of the importance of humans of creating categories. Because, you know, then you have categories of time based on the sun. There's a year, there's a, you know, you have categories of time based on the moon, there's a month. You have categories of time based on the earth, there's a day, you know, you go around, the earth rotates, you know. So you have all of, we're drawing on all of these different cosmological phenomenon to categorize something that is, um, you know, it's, it's just a, a weird thing. Well, what you just pointed out with this, uh, I mean, there, that is a, a wonky, marvelous, brain-busting, discrete moment that you just described. All those oscillations in what we call a second. So there's a, still that discrete, 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 discrete thing that, that Einstein would be talking about. Uh, Augustine says that infinite time gives life purpose. So Augustine, I don't know what he'd say about cesium uh, and oscillations. I, I'm sure eventually perhaps he'd be able to wrap his head around it. Were he here with us now? But probably the question would be, but that second has already passed. So no matter how many oscillations, it's not there anymore. Because that's what he would, the, the, the past no longer exists. The future is yet to come. And, and the present continually passes. And so he says, if the present is all that exists, it must be mathematically, a mathematical point, and yet with no duration. So I think he'd like the oscillations. Yeah, and that, that's like, I think, it was, I think it was Kant who was talking about, I don't remember what, I, I honestly don't remember what physical phenomenon he was talking about, but all I think about is hula hooping. Where... <laughs> You hula hoop and people say that, you know, you're able to keep the hoop going based on your center of gravity. And center of gravity is, sounds like a unique, um, distinct point in space, but it's really an imaginary thing. It's not, you know, if you walk two steps to the right, well, then it's, it's over here or something. And so the hoop is going around and it's going around this center of gravity, but, you know, it's, what is, even if you used uh, some sort of scientific thing to to establish where where's the distinct point in in time where or in space where a center graph yeah it's, 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 and it's virtually unpinnable i know, I know this uh, the scientists would be tearing their hair out hearing me yeah. say this so 
but as a layperson. <clears throat> to me, this is where Heisenberg's uncertainty principle comes in yet again. Because every time you try to measure something in space, you, you can't be accurate about it in time. And if you measure it in time, it's moved in space. Mm -hmm. And that, your hoop is moving, moving, moving. So even the center of gravity must be in motion because the body is in motion. And therefore, I mean, if you watch somebody walk and they're, I have to, this, this happened yesterday. Where the, uh, I stopped to get a, a lunch. I was going to get my uh, car and airbag changed out. And I stopped at a diner to get take out. And, and there were people standing in all kinds of positions. And I just found it fascinating to watch people. I always do. And there was one person who had her legs so crossed that she looked, um, it, it just like an, an X. And she was moving back and forth, and yet she was keeping her balance. But then she'd shift, but then she'd shift again. And there was a person in front of me who was leaning forward, going back, because he was doing something, because we're almost always in motion. Mm. So it's not that the, the, the center of gravity is itself an illusion, because it's multiple centers, depending on the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and they find out stuff like this all the time in science, where it's just... It's well, you find answers and then just creates more questions. The most recent one was electrons being um, football shaped. Because all the science works fine if your electron is spherical. But when you find out it's football shaped, none of it makes sense anymore. Or the same thing with um, quantum entanglement or anything with any of that stuff. It all becomes kind of. It becomes the, 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 the seedbed for marvelous speculation. I mean, for me, that's what. It's not the only thing. One of the values of time is that there are all these minds going back in time who are still present because we talk about them and saying essentially the moment is all that there is, not in an economy of scarcity, but in the fullness of the universe. The moment is. Everything exists in the moment because the moment has a duration, but it can't be mathematically pinned because, well, it's gone. This moment's gone. The oscillation happened. Another nine billion oscillations. Yeah. Okay. yeah it's, but not in how we experience it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm still thinking about that. You think of that cesium oscillating almost 10 billion times a second. And that, that comes back to our, our, fictional science fiction creatures you know if you had something that was a much longer that cesium that's just a if it was a living thing that would just be its normal routine oh well, every second i do this 10 billion times and we would look and we'd look like we're moving in slow motion you know and be the same thing right so if something came to visit us that had you know a million year lifespan we'd look like we were moving you know and that's why where communication issues or all these different things would have a problem is because we'd all be experiencing time differently. So, you know, that comes back to our original argument. Is everything constructing time in a different way? Or is time the same and everybody's making a different thing out of it? So, back to Kant. You know, Kant says, talks about what is not and what must be or, and then there's that in between place of what can be. 
So that's when we're talking about ethical philosophy. What's happened is gone. In, in Kant's view, it, it, we can talk about it. We can discuss it. We can, we can agonize about it and, and so on. But if there is space, not, not a deterministic space, a deterministic space would say what must be, because it's all there. It's all in the frame. But, but what can be, that's where Kant sort of goes to that time, not referencing it necessarily, but the time zero thing of, oh, okay. So where will that arrow fly? Where, what can I, where can I go with my eyes and my body to follow the path of the arrow? Can I make decisions that um, will alter the course? Okay. So, so yeah, we've covered, you know, units of time a little bit, how we, how we base things, which is kind of an interesting system because I feel like almost anything else we, we will use one sort of thing to measure something. All the time we're measuring the sun, the moon, the earth, or whatever we can do because it's such a weird kind of unique thing that I think when they first started trying to find units for it, they were using almost anything they could to, yeah. Now we can do cesium at 10 billion oscillations a second, but before we had that kind of technology, how would you de- determine what, you know, how would you get people to synchronize their... Well, we didn't synchronize until we got to the industrial measurement. The, the, the clouds. But, but think about, uh, and the, right now, this, this year, which is a marvelous word in itself, there are so many different years on this planet depending on culture, nation, nationality, na- and the, 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 which calendar they're going on. We don't, we have lots of different calendars mm. on the planet and we look for a standard. And so we just assume it's our standard. But even, even, right, but even, but they're not. And then, and then we have the, you know, fall back, spring ahead thing with our hours, right? And there are places that choose not to. I had that happen. My uncle lives in like the Four Corners area and there's one town that observed daylight savings time and one that didn't. So you drive 15 minutes this way, but you know, everything is an hour behind where you had just been. So what's changing between the 15 feet over there and the 15 feet over here? You know, human determination, right? <laughs> which is what Augustine was talking about and what McTaggart talked about in the in the 20th century, we, we, we choose the reality. It's, 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 um, I think McTaggart was the one who also said that, that, uh, because of these different series of moments and the ways that we, that we look at them, that there is a, a clash, an oxymoronic, uh, paradoxical state. And therefore time is a, a concept that is not even worthy of considering right so i'm liking this because as we're getting farther along in the conversation we're starting to to pick up um arguments for both sides of that time is real versus time is a construct sort of have you ever in your car not when the time the hour falls back have you ever just not adjusted your clock not me i i'm i'm real but uh, amanda my wife she uh she always does it i she will just keep driving until I get in the car and then I'll change it because it will drive me nuts. But all right. So I have a, a similar situation that way, but, 
uh, and my son the other day very kindly changed it for me in the car. I was an hour, but, but there's an interesting state when you're driving along, paying attention to driving, of course, but still thinking about, I'm in both 9.30 and 10.30. Right. Or yeah. if you're somebody who's chronically late, like my wife, she sets all the clocks, you know, five, 10, and none of them are the same. So one clock's five minutes ahead, one clock's 10 minutes ahead, one goes, and so we're driving somewhere and I'll look at the clock and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're going to be late and I'm, I'm adjusting for the future. I'm looking into the future, seeing how long it will take us to get to some place, looking at the clock and then saying, we're going to be five minutes late and just say, no, don't worry. This clock is set five minutes fast in order to encourage me to live in the future, you know, push my, push my efforts forward in order to be places on time. And the whole thing is just like, and it's just a matter of consciousness. Yeah. Gandalf, Gandalf says, I am never late. A wizard arrives precisely when he should. Okay. So there's a, that idea of lateness is a construct. We make it so that we can arrive the, the, the industrial age. We know this, the old saw about the, getting the trains to run on time. Okay. So we, we made ourselves so pressured that if we don't get at the same place or we get all worked up because we're 15 minutes late, well, that happens if you're 15 minutes late and you miss your flight because of the connections. That causes more anxiety and probably all kinds of medical issues than many other things in this world. But yeah. just, and, and I've experienced anything we all have because we get ourselves worked up because why? Because we're going to miss this. Because why? Because we're late. Because why? Because we don't, we measure time a certain way, but we can't adhere to it because of the of the, the complexity of machinery and the uncertainty of weather and we ha and so the acknowledgement of both the the limitations of our own constructs and the the not terribly complete predictability of nature itself we get all twisted yeah yeah no i know for sure i do because you know being they have a saying in the army if you're 10 minutes early you're five minutes late because you're supposed to be 15 minutes early for everything. And you show up and then you stand around for an hour before anything happens. But if you're not there exactly on time, some, something really bad is going to happen to you. And so that, that, that passes through to other parts of your life. And I know exactly what you're saying. It does. It creates all kinds of, all kinds of stress over something that is essentially just kind of a human construct that is really pretty... Yes, you, you don't you don't picture ancient philosophers saying, uh, we'll have wine in a while. Uh, uh, we'll see you when the sun is close to the horizon. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> it doesn't yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. All right. So let's move on to the part that I think people are gonna be the most interested in, that's time manipulation. So let's talk about time travel. Is it possible to travel through time? any other way than one second into the future. All right. There are physicists, I can't name them at the moment, I apologize, but I have read them. Um, th this is a constant debate. And all the, sci the late science magazines for lay people, like Discover Magazine and Scientific American, has whole issues devoted to it. Um, those who say, nope, you can't violate this anymore, they can violate the speed of light. It's a, it's a, a fundamental, things happened, they're there, they, they're gone, we're in the present, the future's coming, that's just how it is, you can't. Because, for any number of reasons, because if you went back in time somehow, 
then your atoms can't be in two places at the same time. The particular matter of which you're made, uh, so we go back to the pre-Socratics and the matter stuff, is it's somewhere else in that time. So you can't have it be in two places at the same time. Well, then there are other physicists, I'm speaking as a layperson, who say, yeah, but particles can be in two places at the same time. Some kind of particles can. And only when you notice them does the particle then take up residence in that one. Yeah, and, and, and both of these things are scientifically proven. Hawking radiation is an example of that happening. Right at the event horizon of a black hole, you, ha- you constantly have particles popping in and out of existence, and they do it as pairs. So at the event horizon of a black hole, if you get right at the edge, you'll have one that pops in inside the black hole and one that pops in outside the black hole. And so as a result, the black hole is very gradually evaporating. It's losing mass because particles that were inside will just pop outside. And so, yeah, the, you know, they can be in two places at once. They can essentially violate that. Nothing can escape this, not even light. And light is the cosmic speed limit. Well, here's something that it is doing. Yeah. So, and then there's the particle called the tachyant, which seems uh, to make it way too simplistic to go backwards in time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff that. Yeah, as Dr. Who would say, there's stuff. <laughs> it's, not, it's not in the realm of philosophy. It's in the realm of science. Um, there's things that argue for both ways. But remember, science is philosophy. It, it, it is the most ancient, the first of the... Because yeah. like we said, you, can't, you can never prove anything. You can just disprove some things. So it's an, it's an ever-evolving thing. And there is arguments for both camps. Yes, you can time travel and... No, you can't. So if you did, and this is what I enjoy with, with good time travel science fiction stories. I, I love reading what's called hard science fiction. It's not hard as in the sense of, oh, it's going to make you hurt. Although it does take uh, extrapolations from current physics and so on. So I suppose in one sense it's hard, but it just means that it's adhering to the rules and then extrapolating from that. Uh, and then there's fantasy kinds of things, but the, the real is why are we so fascinated with time travel? Because we want to change things, because we want to go back and fix things. Uh, we want some kind of work wonky, wonky, eccentric alien who has a little blue box to go back and forth and, and repair things as fast as they're falling apart, because they then they keep falling apart again. There's, a, there's this entropic nature of, in humanity as well as in the universe. And we'll keep stumbling over ourselves and breaking things. And so we want a cosmic janitor to come and fix those up behind us and then uh, get ahead of us and fix it up up there too. Uh, you know, it's fascinating. We, do we really want to go back and kill our grandfathers? I don't think so, but that's, you know. Right. You know, to, if I killed my grandfather, then I wouldn't be alive, so I couldn't go back in the first place. That's what'll make your your head hurt. Yeah. That's why uh, in the Star Trek, Captain Kirk in, in the novels, the time travel gives me a headache. But they form a whole, if the, in the Star Trek universe, they form a whole department of, of uh, temporal investigation, which is trying to send Kirk to a sort of prison because of the amount of times that he has violated. So, so now we're going to have 
the whole legalistic thing about and, and and Connie Willis is a marvelous science fiction writer who does that kind of thing too. There are rules for time travel. You can't do this. You can't do that because if you do this, it'll mess that up. Then why are we going to do it in the first place? <laughs> right. Yeah. The whole causality thing is interesting, and and it's like you're saying it says something bigger about humanity because like like you're saying there's a big trope in in the time travel literature is that there's you go back to fix things but then you end up making other things worse when you when you do that and i think that that that's really saying something about about people the same thing happens with with music i do music or with photography Every, everybody has a phone in their pocket and you take a you take a picture and then you put a filter on to fix it but if you fix it too much, people are going to say that you made it worse than if you just didn't put a thing on. It doesn't look natural. It looks artificial. Yeah, same thing with auto-tune. You have a bad voice, so you put on auto-tune to make it sound right. But if you use too much auto-tune, people are going to say, well, that sounds, it sounds auto-tuned. It's, it's a derogatory term, you know? And so I think it's the same thing is, you know, humans have this desire to right wrongs that they did, perceived wrongs. Because we can't accept um, imperfection. But by going back and trying to write these things, we almost reach this uncanny valley where we go, well, this isn't human anymore because it's so perfect. These are parables of embracing our imperfection. Yes, yeah, exactly. We, we, we want things to have imperfection. We want them to have that level, but we can't accept it. Um, I, I think they're also parables of, of, of a longing for eternity and i'm not getting i'm not sure where i'm going with that but it just occurred to me uh, we if we can it, it's like a, 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 a fictional parable rendering some of the most current notions the time is a box a manifold which carries all time frames within it well it's like we're we're poking at that idea and and beginning to, science fiction is not about prophecy. Uh, so many people love to poke. See, they got that wrong. See how many things H.G. Wells got wrong. Well, that's that's ridiculous. It's no fun. It's I, but as extrapolation or as carrying us forward into more complex ideas, it's a marvelous venue. So I have this feeling with all these shows and so on, we're just saying, oh, maybe the universe is more flexible. Maybe it's fluid. Maybe time is everything, past, present, and future. Maybe we are alive in multiple moments at the same time so it's like a a, a late person rendering of these immense theories yeah yeah and, uh, again this is in our last question we're gonna we're gonna get into some of this but i think that that's a good segue into time dilation which is both the real and perceived um changes in duration of time so We've talked about some of the real changes in duration of time. You know, if you're close to a gravity well like a black hole, time is going to go much slower. Um, if you put a satellite out in space that's telling you how to drive to your grandma's for Thanksgiving, that satellite is going to be traveling and time is going to be at a different rate for it than it is for you, ever so slightly so. So that's a real time dilation, but there's also perceived time dilations that happen on a regular basis where you look at the clock and five minutes has gone by and you say, oh man, it feels like it's been an hour. Or an hour goes by and you look at the clock and you think, man, it feels like it's been five minutes. What has philosophy had to say about time dilations, real or imagined? What kind of, 
what kind of um, things have been said? It, it, it goes to the idea of the uh, experiential that we, <clears throat> it's those two points we started out with that if, if we take time as experiential, then uh, the me- mechanistic measurement of it seems, I think we value the experiential more than the mechanistic. I think that the, stri- that the pure-ish science values the measure. But I don't think even the humans who are the scientists who are doing that are still saying, well, that's the only thing about time. I think that most of us would do like to go to a place, Thanksgiving, whatever it happens to be, and, and have these marvelous moments, laughter, telling, retelling stories, the family mythic stuff, and, and, and realizing that, oh, it's dark. I didn't even, where did it go? I think we value that a lot more. And, and, and I think that it also offers some kind of troubling of philo- philosophically time dilation or time dislocation of the medical idea of, of Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, the experience, the reality of it for people who are living or reliving moments with their parents and they are children in their whole identity in their minds where's my mom where's my you know heart-wrenching things when you experience it but yet if you think all right there is some dislocation philosophically there's some time dislocation going on here if there's a veil and they've pierced it then their time travels but whatever is happening there's not a sequence there's a disruption in what we like. We like sequence, right? Because past, present, and future, that makes us feel comfortable. <laughs> and so philosophically, I think that's why we favor it. And, and maybe we, we don't have the sensibilities we can't because of our mechanism itself. Not. We see everything in terms of the past and the present. But for those who are dislocated, um, it's fractured. It's, it's, they're stuck in that place for a while. And then they're in a place that time doesn't exist at all. I'm just here. Why am I here? Who am I? What? Yeah. And, and I don't think that's, I, I think that that's a magnified medical view. I mean, it's, it's magnified because of the, the horrors of what families go through and the individual. But I think that can be writ into more normal circumstances with those of us who don't, aren't riddled with Alzheimer's and so on, where we, sometimes we want to live back in that moment. Sometimes we'll, We'll daydream and we'll be where that really, that thing happened. We, we come back to a moment that makes us smile. Uh, we, well, it's, 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 you smell a perfume and time travel. Yeah. Um, and osmia, you don't smell a perfume and, and, and time travel, but there are probably other things that might. Um, and so it's, it's mental. The British probably say we're being mental or age, <laughs> but, but it's, just as real mm. yeah and i you know you look at scientific studies of time dilation what they find out is you can you can plot on a graph how you experience time throughout your life you know and you see that basically almost a third of your life is spent between three and ten years old because of the time dilation you know if you traveling from being three years old to four years old is an immense amount of time to you as opposed to traveling between 83 and 84 years old, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or like you were asking about um, in our, our first episode, um, 
experiencing things. You know, it, the more things you, science has shown, the faster something's moving, or the more things that are, the more activity that's happening, the slower time is experienced. And I think that's part of the reason that I like, I like doing a lot of stuff is because I have a lot of memories to draw on. You know, I can look back and it seems like I've said it, I say it all the time to my friends and, you know, I'm 30 years old and it seems like I've been alive forever. You know, it seems like if I were to die tomorrow, I would not be sad because I can't imagine doing, living two or three times as long as I already have because I've already done all of these things. I've already have all the experiences. Kant would tell you, you've, li- you've been living a good, the good life. Whereas, you know, there's other people that will, that will you know, be 50 or 60 or 70 so this man where did the time go you know it's uh, it's all it's all gone you know so it is it's really just a strange thing um the time dilation you know and i'm sure that if you ask those same people about different things and you had them reliving memories they would say that the same thing you know i've i have all these experiences i have all these things but it's your ability to time travel in your mind that determines whether that span of time seems long or short you know how what can you pull from it the memories you have the experiences you have and not to get lost in it i mean that's probably what counseling is about right don't don't get trapped in at the moment if not medically well medically or not either way oh you, you can get stuck or you can say oh yeah this was great that was great i've done this now i've done this now and so but but it's not like now i've done this now i've done this now i've done this like some kind of bucket list it's like it's just you're accruing things because you're just moving through the universe doing these things. And then you look at them and say, oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and anybody who's ever made plans realizes that that's not the way time works. <laughs> you know, you make plans and then nothing ever turns out the way you planned it anyway. So, um, okay. So let's, let's move into our, our final topic. And the question is what are the consequences of time being a real dimension? versus a perceptual construct, which is a very poignant way to end because we've spent the whole episode talking about the one versus the other. So would you like me to go through what I have and then you can comment? Okay. So the first thing I had to say is that if time is just a perception, it changes what mortality means. And what I mean by that is the example I used earlier on, where if you had those aliens that were 30 light years away looking through their telescope at us, if they're seeing me being born, if, if reality is, you know, just perception, it's just me thinking of time is just something that's created in my mind. And what that means is the light that they are perceiving 30 light years away, that's reality. You know, Einstein liked to think about space time as a, a rubber mat and you had different balls that would weigh down different things. But that, it's almost like moving. It's a moving mat. You know, time as it travels outward, those things are still real, but they're just moving, you know? And as are you relativistic. Right. So you're 30 and you're one. You're a second. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm one years old somewhere, 29 light years away, you know, somewhere. So if time is just a perception in our head, you know, or if time is real, that changes what it means to be mortal because in some sense, you are immortal if it's not a perception. If time is a real built into the fabric of the universe sort of thing, you're essentially immortal, but just at points that are outside of your perception, which is a, a crazy thing to think of. The next thing I had was, if time is just a perceptual construct, 
its perception may affect our ability to understand the universe, which is again along the same lines. Perception is really kind of the key thing there because we're looking at the universe at one point in time. And then we're looking out and seeing the universe at 40 million years ago and only at that point in time. And so there's a great picture if you, if you Google images, um, like the pillars of the gods, you see these incredible things. And what, you know, what scientists have said is that those don't exist anymore. A supernova went off and blew all of those clouds of dust and gas away. But we don't see it yet. <laughs> they just know they can look at the picture and see this star over here is going to go supernova sometime within a hundred million years. And since the pillars of the gods are half a billion light years away, it's already happened, but we just haven't seen it yet. And so, again, perception, you know, it's, it's the same thing that we were, I was saying in the first point, but just outside of my own human experience, it, it applies to the whole universe. So, you know, did, do these things currently exist or did they only exist at one point? And the last thing, and this is the crazy thing, is that at the largest scales, it makes no difference. And so, what I mean by that is that if you look at time, um, really, the two sort of scientific consensuses to it are the lesser... The lesser accepted one is that time is an infinite sort of thing. So the universe will just always exist, it always will exist. And that creates an infinity in the math where what that means is that if time and therefore you know, space is infinite, then it encompasses the infinite number of possibilities. Meaning that if you and I were to travel in infinite number of light years this way, eventually we would run into you and me conducting this exact same philosophy podcast somewhere else in space. But the other aspect of that is if, if time is fine, or, you know, if, if the universe is finite, but time is, is infinite, then there's eventually going to be a quantum fluctuation that will start a new Big Bang and it will be a cyclical cycle that would go on forever. And eventually, the exact same atoms and molecules that make us up would fall into place. And this exact same thing would be happening an infinite number of years later. So it's the same result, but it's just different processes. It's either an infinite amount of time or an infinite amount of space. And that sort of sews together that, um, that conception of space-time as one thing. So that, that's kind of, to me, the consequences of having those two things. The first two points talk about at times a perceptual construct. And that creates some really weird things where we're immortal. Everything that's ever happened in this universe didn't just happen. It is happening. Like you said, we're dropping the glass. The glass is always being dropped. It never, it never, you know, it's always, there's always the present. There's always the past. There's always the future. And that seems to not be right intuitively. But when you look at the other part of it, you know, when you think of time as being a real fundamental part of the universe, then you run into these other issues where it's a different type of mortality. It's almost, it's almost a, a record on repeat, you know, like, you know, or, you know, a multiverse. There's going to be 
several iterations of it in between where we have a you know a podcast on sports or you know something like that so it's going to be something different you know so those those were my the consequences that i could think of i i'm taking great joy in hearing you articulate this so well because uh, I mentioned Ted Sider as the new, well, not the newest, but he's among the, the newer philosophers um, talking about this stuff. And his whole idea of the block manifold universe with all time frames within is called eternalism. So it, it, it riffs right off of what you were said. Right. That's what it's known as, as a philosophical position. Um, and and therefore, every time we find out more about the age of the universe regressing backwards, and we think of ourselves forward into the future in some very strange way, we are as if we are pinning ourselves across time and saying it's all happened. So to me, there's a there's a comfort in that. There's a there's a there's a comfort in the the multiverse thing. Um, whether it is physically so or psychologically, philosophically so, let's, let's say it's physically so. I, the number of errors I make in any given day, it would be nice to know that some ultimate version of me out there somewhere got it right occasionally. And, and I'll never know him or see him, but I can project him. I can say, okay, if he can do that, then so can I, but it's not like I'm trying to catch up to myself. It's that, you know, what's the big problem if we've messed up? It's almost a Zen to it. If we've messed up, someone else is going to mess up, or it might not be us this time, or maybe we won't mess up on this, but you can be absolutely certain we're going to mess up on something else. So there's just, there's just a comfort in it. It's, a, it's, it's odd because you take that eternalism and it brings you back to living in the moment. Well, what can I do with this? Um, the idea of the, the actual physical, it's, the universe is boggling. And I love looking at pictures of space. I have my entire life. And, and you said that the, the pillars of the gods, always one of the favorites. Um, it exists now in our perception, physically, as you said, we can look through it. There it is. And the science will say, but no, it's not. <laughs> this is a shadow of it. The event has taken place, nonetheless, for, you know, standing on the ground kind of realism, that's real enough. Uh, and to think about it at one and the same time exists and doesn't exist, that, that photograph of that, that, of those, that nebula teaches us everything that we need to know. Mm. It's there, it's part of the universe, so are we, it's not there, and yet it is there. For us, it's good enough. So the other, the, the correlate to that is um, out above the hills of Warsaw, looking over toward Batavia, I'm geographically locating this, right? There's a dark place in the sky. And when the Hubble went up and it did its uh, deep sky photograph, and the size of a nickel, if you hold it, tell the sort of that size up and put your finger and your thumb together and look and it's dark and you look at that same nickel that the Hubble looks at there are millions of galaxies we can't see them the ocean and the bathosphere the a guy walking around with a sphere of light we can't see them with our unaided eye 
but they're there because our machines have told us they're uh, unless we don't trust our machines, which can lead us to not trusting anything. We, we, we need to trust the extension of ourselves enough to say there's more than we could possibly imagine. When the machines get even better, what other things are we going to see that yeah. we had no idea was there? So that too is comforting and exciting. Yeah. Because, you know, they're, they're talking about, you know, there's the dark matter and the dark energy that make up 96% of the universe. They're, the, the current thing they're talking about is the, the dark matter hurricane that's going to hit, hit our galaxy or, um, you know, the, the standard model of physics. There might be a completely, you know, a huge chunk of it that we're missing because we can't yet detect um, dark matter, you know, molecules and things. If a star explodes, a certain kind of star, quasar, uh, sends a sheet of gamma radiation. Mm-hmm. We, we aren't going to know that it's coming. Yeah. And it will, it would eradicate us instantly. Yeah. Just gone. And, 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 and so if somebody listening to this, uh, you find comfort in that? Well, I find, I not, not comfort in the traditional sense, but I find the, the joy of the moment again because Gee, we could get tromped on by Godzilla. No, probably not, but we could get wiped out by a, a quasar. You know? Or even bigger than that, they, they've found that the, the universe isn't a true vacuum. And so matter always wants to be at the lowest state of energy. So they said at any given point, the universe could just turn into a true vacuum state and everything would just incinerate. I mean, we're talking infinity war. Right, <laughs> we're, we're living on the biggest powder cake that could possibly yeah, exist. Yeah. Okay, um, does that bother, does that mean I don't want to have a good sandwich for lunch? No, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I know. I hope that if if nothing else, this episode has got people thinking about, you know, not just the moment you're in or the moment that's past or the moments to, that's to come, but also about. If those moments that are outside the one you're currently in are a real thing, or if it's something that you have invented as a human, or what place that plays and how that, how that affects everything. So uh, I think it was a good podcast. Thank you for listening to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. Recording and production are provided by me, Joel Bouchard, and the song featured in the show is Questions, off of my album Jaguars which you can find on Spotify or anywhere MP3s are sold. Until next time, keep talking.